Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. On August the 12th, 1982, the finance minister of Mexico phoned the head of the International Monetary Fund and told him that Mexico was broke and unable to pay back the enormous debt it had run up in the 70s. So began what Mexicans call the crisis. For the middle class and even the organized working class, it was a catastrophe. But for the peasantry, the poor, and the economically marginal, it turned out to be a blessing. That's the view of Mexican scholar-activist Gustavo Esteva, featured tonight on Ideas in part three of our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. The series is based on a conference called Living with the Earth, organized by the Interculture Institute of Montreal. It was held in Orford, Quebec, in the spring of 1992, and it brought together engaged thinkers from around the world to consider the conditions for right livelihood in the age of ecology. David Cayley was at the conference, and there he recorded tonight's program. The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, Part 3, by David Cayley. When I first met Gustavo Esteva in 1988, he startled me by describing himself as a deprofessionalized intellectual and nomadic storyteller. He participated, he told me, in an association of some 400 grassroots groups of peasants and urban marginals. But this association, he added, was neither an institution, nor a network, nor even a web, all designations which he and his collaborators had formerly used, then discarded, but rather it was a hammock which temporarily assumed the shape of those using it. The story of how this hammock came to be began in the early 70s, when Esteva headed the powerful state food marketing agency Conosupo in the government of Luis Echeverria. Echeverria's regime was the coming to power of the high hopes of the Mexican 60s, and also their disappointment. It made Esteva aware, he wrote later, that the higher we were in the hierarchy, the more distanced we were from the peasants. So he and a number of like-minded professional colleagues set out to create a more autonomous space for their activities on behalf of the people. However, they soon saw that as long as they kept the professional upper hand, they were only practicing a more hidden form of paternalism. At the same time, the groups they were working with had begun to recognize more and more clearly that for the majority of Mexicans, development had not only involved a demoralizing attack on dignity, solidarity, and self-reliance, but it had also been a mirage. These twin disillusionments converged in the construction of the hammock. Two years ago on Ideas, I presented an interview with Gustavo Esteva, a result of that first meeting, in a series called The Informal Economy. In that interview, he suggested that in Mexico, perhaps elsewhere, a form of society is emerging which he called a new commons. This form is neither traditional nor modern, though it has elements of both within it, but constitutes a novel and specifically postmodern form of subsistence. It occurs in a space irreversibly altered by development, but it has renounced development's tantalizing promises. When I got a chance to speak with Esteva again in Orford, I wanted to find out more. We began with his disaffection with the development work he and his collaborators had tried to do in the 70s. 
And then it was a, a complete disillusionment with all the forms of development, all the practices of development. Uh, economic development, economic growth, then social development, then endogenous development. Then after all those forms of development, we started with beautiful slogans like popular participation, self-help, holism. All of this was very beautiful. And then when we were seeing, and, and all of us were seeing the, the failures of this, the institutions knew, and we knew in the field, in, in, in working with the people, we, we, we solved the problem. And then it was a kind of, of puzzlement in which you were doing the best you can do, and, and uh, you, you were putting your life in the, in the things, and, and you were seeing that the results were uh, not, no, it's not only uh, not enough results, it was counterproductive, that you were producing the opposite of what you wanted to produce. There came also the conviction at the same time what we discovered among the people. All the time, the people were resisting development. And we thought, as the textbook said, that it was resistance to modernity, uh, traditionalism, uh, conservatism, these kind of things. And we were all the time puzzled by this resistance to development. But then, in those years, by the end of the 70s, we were also having documented studies showing us that the people were right that development was really counterproductive, that it was destroying everything. And then we have these elements in the hands. Mm -hmm. But the concrete emotional experience of frustration, of impotence, of disillusionment, and the facts, the studies, the analytical elements. You also spoke yesterday about realizing the changes that were taking place in Mexico City in the middle of the so-called crisis. The question that really helped us a lot to, to, to be aware of what was happening was the so-called crisis. Because after uh, Mexico announced the, the 1982, uh, the default, and a few weeks later uh, nationalized the bank, uh, we started with a kind of crisis, um, a generalized crisis in every aspect of Mexico. And one very concrete experience, experience that created the new awareness was the experience of seeing the poor people, the poorest people of the city, the, the poorest people in Mexico, that uh, were clearly improving in the middle of the crisis. That was very paradoxically. The standard claim the government was accepting, the left was uh, denouncing, that the poor will suffer a lot with the crisis. And what we were seeing was exactly the opposite. Of course, they were losing things, they were confronting turbulences, but uh, many of them were improving, were having better opportunities in every aspect than in the last 20 years. Then that was very paradoxical and provoked a reflection among the people and among ourselves. What would be some examples of what you're calling improvement? There are many, many uh, forms of improvement uh, of course, but one standard fact is that the poor can improve their income with inflation because they don't depend on, on salaries. And usually they, they use the inflation to improve their income more than, than the inflation. The other form of improvement is a lot of activities in, in places like Mexico City in which the many people, the so-called poor, live doing some kind of things that are not in demand in times of boom and that are really uh, asked for in times of crisis. For example, the repair of shoes. In Mexico City, it's usually an active, a nomadic activity. Uh, then you have these uh, repairmen that goes around. 
uh, in the houses, knock the door and ask if you have some shoes to repair. That was the tradition. I, I knew this in my in my childhood. Uh, then in this, usually there, there, there were some shoes to repair. And then he sits there, he starts working, he talks with the women, with the servant, wh wh whoever. He takes a beer, he, he is there uh, some, some time, and he has a good income and, and, and a beautiful activity. And he's around, he's not in a closed place. But this kind of activity was dying because of development, and especially during the boom. Because all the middle classes, whenever they had a small problem with their shoes, they throw the, <laughs> the shoes to the garbage and, and they bought a new, new, new ones. But with the crisis, they, they were forced to be more careful with their, with their shoes. And they started again to reactivate this activity. Then many people of these activities that were improving, instead of having problems, they were uh, regenerating their lives again. And of course, uh, informal activities proliferated in the whole city, productive cooperatives and any kind of activities for people that really were flourishing because developers were weakened by the crisis. Why would the informal activities have grown stronger during the crisis? We have now empirical studies that show that there is an inverse correlation mm. between the growth, the economic growth, that means the growth of the formal sector, and uh, the growth, if you can call the growth of the, the economy in the informal sector. Because every time you have an increase in the formal sector, you are destroying something in the informal. And the opposite. When there is a collapse in the formal sector, you have some kind of flourishing in the, in the informal. It is a kind of um, complementarity. Take the, one of the basic markets in Mexico City. A very important market is the market of used things. When you have booms, the people, especially the middle classes, the rich people, are flourishing because you have, with a positive rate of economic growth, they are buying new things. When uh, you are in times of difficulty, uh, there are two kinds of things. First, you are selling things because you need to <laughs> any kind of, uh, to, to pick up the penny when, wherever you can, you can get it. Then many people in the middle classes or in all the classes, they are selling things. And people are, are buying used things, and they are found finding that they can have very good things that are used. At the same time, you have the question of very peculiar recycling, that in Mexico it's something done with a lot of ingenuity and talent. I don't know if I mentioned to you the case of the irons, the electric irons. The original iron, the industrial one, is uh, conceived technically with great ingenuity of the industry for a programmed obsolescence of two years. Then after two years, it's impossible to repair that iron. You need to throw it to the garbage. Then the people of uh, several places in, in Mexico can pick up from the garbage these irons. In the outside, they are almost new because they have not almost have not been used in two years. They put in a completely new thermostat inside of their own invention. Most of this thermostat is with used wires. They polish the whole thing. They paint the whole iron, and then they sell. This iron now have half the price of the new one, and it uh, lasts for ten years. Then <laughs> it is now famous among the people that this kind of irons produce it in, in small workshops in Mexico are a lot better than the industrial ones. 
This is an example in which you have, because of the crisis, because of the problems in the formal sector, you have flourishing in the informal with an improvement of the conditions for everyone. Of course, we are not talking about a, a world in which you suppress one sector. One depends on the other. But you're saying they are in a relationship. Yes, yes. We have now enough elements to say that uh, we can present as a desirable goal for Mexican society a negative rate of growth. For how long? I don't know for how long. But for the, the foreseeable future, we can say for the, for the next 10 years, we can see how we will improve ourselves. Well, the majority of the people, the, the, the so-called poor, will improve their lives if we have a negative rate of growth. We, we have come to that specific position. Of course, the middle classes are suffering. Many of them are even in a kind of collapse. They, they lost in 10 years what they considered their gains in, in the previous 30 years. In some cases, the losses are really dramatic. Perhaps eight of every 10 salaried workers of Mexico are now back in the level of, of income, of real income of 1934. But let me present an, an example that it's, I think is uh, very dramatic about how unjust was the, the situation. In 1980, we prepared a study comparing professors and researchers of the National University in Mexico City and an American, uh, and American universities. And usually a mediocre professor in our university had a salary in US dollar terms, in, in absolute terms, a lot better than the salary of an emeritus professor of Harvard or, or Yale. And in addition to this, he had an office twice as bigger as, as the, the, his colleague in Harvard, and services of every kind, secretaries, and every kind of, of, of services. This was, in fact, obscene. It was terrible in, in, in a country with all the limitations and restrictions of Mexico to have our professors and, of course, our engineers and our lawyers and all the professionals and all the middle classes, all those that uh, were claiming for something in 68, that were students in 68, and that the government opened their possibilities in the, in the 70s, and they were, uh, were having an obscene level of, of income. And they were, of course, also alienating the whole society towards goals that are really impossible are alienating for all of us. The kind of world they were dreaming of, it was not a world for the, the whole society, it was a world for a minority. Some of brilliant intellectual has said that they were the first Americans born in Mexico. And, and, and they, they are right, they, they, they have the mind in, 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 in the States. They get their calls cured in Houston. All of their children have been in, in Disneyland. Uh, they have this terrible mind. They are getting this obsession with, with living in a form that has nothing to do with Mexico. In 1987, Gustavo Esteva published an essay called Regenerating People's Space. It described what he thought had gone on during the 80s amongst those who had been excluded from, or renounced, development. At the time, he was particularly conscious of the regeneration of urban spaces in places like the Mexico City barrio of Tepito. Today, he thinks that this same flourishing is more and more evident in the countryside as well. During the last five years, uh, I think we can observe a very interesting movement that um, created a possibility of 
modifying the direction of the flow of people between the city and the countryside. Uh, one of the elements that was uh, very interesting in all this period is the intensity of the relationship between the city and the countryside, because all the villages of Mexico had a kind of association in Mexico City. Uh, I have the proofs for the case of Oaxaca, which every village ha had an, a specific association in Mexico City where the people were hosting the people of the village, when the people of the village were coming uh, for a temporary or permanent migration or uh, to do something or whatever. And the people of the city were going to the village all the time and uh, there was a permanent introduction. But the basic introduction was really for uh, facilitating the flow of migra uh, migrants from the countryside to the city. And this is how the, the, the explosion of Mexico City happened in all this period. Now, apparently, because thanks to the crisis, there is something like the regeneration of the life in the village, uh, I have been always convinced that most of the people living in the village was not really because of the attraction of the city, but because it was the life in the village became impossible, that it was not possible to continue the life in the village. And then because they discovered that there were no future for them, they started going outside. Now, because there are now possibilities in the villages, and the villages are flourishing, and, and, and they have those spaces regenerated, now they are starting to host the people that went to the city, and in the city, these people are having any kind of trouble. They have the problems of, of violence, they have the problems of pollution, they have the problems of the, the so-called crisis, and then there is a regeneration of the spaces in the countryside, um, giving up some of the uh, spaces uh, they had in the city, but without giving them up completely. <laughs> they, they have a still a base, a base there. there. There is uh, in, in that case, a balance between the activities in the city and in the countryside. Let me express this in a very concrete terms. There is two surprises of the last census of Mexico in 1990. Mexico was supposed to have 20 million people, and following the census of 1990, it has only 16 million people. That's a lot less than was supposed. And there is another case. The poorest province in Mexico is Oaxaca. It has a population of 3 million, 70% of Indians. For three decades, 40, deca 40 years, it has no increase in population. And it was not because uh, a, a reduction of uh, uh, birds, it, but it was because of migration, because of the destruction of Oaxaca, thanks to development. Uh, Oaxaca was being really destroyed. And, and, and you can find now terrible landscapes or, or moon, moon uh, landscapes because of destruction of the forest and destructions of the culture, destructions of the people. And then for, for 40, almost 40 years, Oaxaca has no increase in population. And you found the people in Oaxaca in, in Los Angeles, in, in California, in Mexico City, wherever. Mm -hmm. Well, during the 80s, Oaxaca has a very important increase in population. That is the other surprise of the, of the census then those small villages of the poor people flourish it. Those have people coming, coming back. When you have a village flourishing in Mexico, you, all it, you immediately see more adobe houses being built, the people repairing their houses, they are flourishing. When you see a village collapsing, you see the houses collapsing. You see abandoned houses, you, you see roofs falling, falling apart. If you go to Oaxaca now, you will see in every villages, new houses, people repairing their houses. 
we are having a very interesting migration, not only in the poorest people, but also of the intelligent people that are going outside and, and living in a different mm. way. It's the regeneration of spaces. Uh, in Mexico City, we can also observe, see, and even smell how they are also regenerating their spaces. But, but uh, I think that a basic element, the recent element, is now also regeneration of the spaces in the countryside. Does that reflect basically a change in people's attitude? I think it is a combination. It's the limits of what they confront, the restrictions that they, uh, they observe. But the other element is clearly that they learn it from this. In, and instead of desperation, frustration, uh, say, oh, this is impossible, uh, we failed. Instead of, of the usual reaction of the middle class man, you can imagine what the attitude of lawyers and engineers driving a taxi. Uh, they are frustrated, they failed. They are not thinking, oh, uh, how good is my life because now I am driving a car instead of being in an office. <laughs> they are really very frustrated and angry and, and, uh, uh, and they have a sensation of impotence. And uh, In these people, confronting uh, limitations, restrictions, problems, turbulences of the crisis, they discovered, they learned from that, they discovered a, a, a path, they recovered hope, they recovered the possibility of, of, of dreaming again their own dreams. And they followed their path with success. And that this stimulated the possibility of continuing that path. Gustavo Esteva, as I mentioned earlier, calls the space that he thinks is regenerating in Mexico today a new commons. He believes that its first political manifestation was in the election of 1988, when the upstart Democratic Revolutionary Party of Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas nearly ended the 60-year rule of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI as it's usually known. In fact, it was commonly believed that Cardenas had won and been denied the victory only by fraud. In Mexico City, the government won only 30% of the vote. Esteva's interpretation of what happened is that the candidacy of Cardenas became a medium through which these new commons were able to manifest themselves. They confirmed in that election what they were. And of course, they have now the government over them, trying to seduce them, to co-opt them. They are trying to do whatever the people want. And I think, even if the opposition parties are very angry with this, because they are saying that the government is buying the people, the people are using the attitude of the government, the need of the government, of their, of, of their votes and their, their acceptance, and they are trying to get as much as possible in this period. And then they are getting a lot of things in, in every possible aspect. We have the opposite to an stupid government. We have a very skilled, intelligent, visionary government, and then they know how to react in difficult conditions. And uh, we have a program now, the Programa Nacional de Solidaridad, whose basic principle is to give the public investment to any group, any barrio in a, in a city, any village, the, the money for the investment that the village itself decides. And the government gives technical assistance and industrial materials, but the work, the labor, is uh, responsibility of the community. Well, this is something very interesting because, first, it is a very useful tool to control which kind of works you do in a community. Because if the community does not want and a specific work, the community will not put the labor in it. Then this is first one, one form of controlling. 
the priority. Second, it's a form of reinforcing the participation of the community. The communal spirit is reinforced with, with these kind of things. Third, it's the control of corruption. Not completely, because you can always have a kind of corruption in the, in the process, but the community is involved in the whole process. It is a fact that this increased the votes for the dominant party in 1991. It is a tradition in Mexico that the people uh, negotiate the votes. You give to me this, and then I, I'll give to you this other thing. There is another element. In more or less a traditional society, uh, if you accept a gift, you have a kind of obli obligation. If you pay the gift with another gift, you are liberated. Then if, if they received something from the government and they paid with the, with the vote, they are liberated mm -hmm. to, to start the whole thing mm -hmm. again. Then What I'm trying to say is that even with all the effort of cooptation, the political struggle, all every kind of pressures that you can imagine, of every kind, good and bad, uh, honest and dishonest, every kind. What I am seeing in both uh, the city and the countryside is more and more opportunities of self-government by the people, with real participation of the people in activities representing autonomous government. I am not idealizing, it's not paradise, it's with a lot of problems and temptations, but still, in my view, there is a trend of strengthening the local government, the local possibility of governance by the people. I, I must tell that uh, the program has some spectacular results and also many problems. Uh, there are many cases in which they are creating a lot of, of difficulties for the, for the people. One problem, for example, that does not belong to the design of the program, but to the nature of the things. For the peasants, for the poor peasants in particular, the, the world is, is something of, of great value. It's, it's the honor and the dignity of the people what is involved when you use your word. Well, now the program, Programa Nacional de Solidaridad, have in many uh, poor areas of poor peasants in Mexico a program for credits soft credits, very soft credits, almost without interest, based on trust in the word of the peasants. That's beautiful. That sounds very good. But because of this, poor peasants that had problems with the crop, bad weather or whatever, they are forced to pay. And for them to pay, it's really a question of honor. It's not a question with the corruption of the mm. official bank and that they were trying to escape from that obligation in the past. It's a question of honor because they, they, they trusted them and then they must react paying. It's a question of honor. And then very poor peasants are selling their lands or, or, or being indebted with the local boss, the, the, the cacique, yeah. to pay to Solidaridad. The design was beautiful. Perhaps you and me uh, may, may accept and may approve a program saying, oh yes, trust the peasants, uh, keep them uh, based on the word of honor. But uh, the consequence may be terrible. The pitfalls of the government's solidarity program are, in a sense, typical. Autonomous popular spaces, Esteva says, are continuously threatened. They enjoy neither a secure nor an independent existence. What we are seeing is, yes, the people uh, were able to create their, their new commons where they are living with a lot of talent and skills, but they have a very concrete limitation because they have not enough protection. They cannot protect themselves of what uh, I am calling following, I don't know who invented these uh, four M's, the military, the missionary, 
the merchants and the Marxists. And uh, they have not of, uh, enough protection of the military. This is not the case uh, very strong in Mexico, but in many places, in many parts, there are the pressure of the military trying to develop the discipline of the people. There are the pressures of the merchants, now named uh, transnational corporations, trying to develop the needs of the people, trying to create and develop the needs of the of the people. They have not a proper needs, and then they are uh, the the corporations are trying to create the needs for the people to ask for these products, um, these services. The people have not enough protection from the missionaries. That is, churches, political parties, many do-gooders that are trying to develop their dependency of goods and services by providing to them those goods and services promoted by the transnationals. And finally, uh, I am saying that the Marxists changed the, and uh, now the, the M is changed to an N because instead of Marxists you have NGOs, non-governmental organizations, coming to develop the soul of the people. The soul and their um, self-governance and their uh, self-help and their participation through the NGOs they are being developed, meaning that they lost this sense of dignity, they lost this possibility of autonomy, they lost this affirmation, and instead of that, they are educated in following a different direction. In many cases, they have uh, enough ingenuity to create an alternative relation with the world, creating a kind of protection, a kind of barrier that operates in the practice. Let me give you an, an example. Uh, a group of villages near Mexico City, 60 kilometers from Mexico City in Tlaxcala, a group of villages produce potatoes, very good uh, quality of potatoes, and in, a, in a land really appropriated for potatoes. They were trying to sell these potatoes in Mexico City with bad results, with because of the middlemen, because of the conditions of the market. Sometimes they have good conditions, sometimes not. They were confronted with a kind of instability for the basic product of this area. Then someone in the village decided to produce fried potatoes, to have really a small factory of potatoes. Manufactured farms? Manufactured potato chips. Potato chips, to produce potato chips. Small factory, really small factory. It was collective effort. It was for the community. It was not a private uh, entrepreneur, but it was a person who discovered the possibility, presented it to the group. The group was interested, and finally they collectively decided to put the small factory. But it is impossible for this small factory with uh, potato chips to come to the big market, to come to Mexico City and to compete with the transnationals that dominate the world market for potato chips. But then they thought, and uh, they came with the, to all the school cooperatives in the area, and with all the shops, and they say, if you buy these these chips instead of the commercial ones, instead of the transnational mm -hmm. ones, you will have exactly the same commission, and this will be an improvement for the for the group. It is not, of course, the power of the mafia, but it is very effective power if the whole community come to a shop, mm -hmm. and ask this man to do this kind of thing. He, he really cannot resist this kind of social pressure. And there is no reason for him to resist because he will uh, receive exactly the same income and even perhaps more income because the people will buy more <laughs> chips than, than in other cases. Then there is no reason for him to resist. 
And here is something that perhaps is a good lesson for free trade and, and, uh, and protectionism. I am clearly for this kind of protectionism. It's not for bureaucracies. It's not protection through a bureaucracy. It's not because arrangements between corporations or between governments. It is an obstacle to free trade through personal arrangements among the people. It is the people deciding what to buy and what not to buy. And this has worked. This has worked marvelously. Of course, there is quality. It's not bad potato chips. It's, it's very good potato chips. It's, it's, it is, uh, in my view, better <laughs> potato chips that, than the commercial ones. It's very good potato chips for this local circuit. They cannot come to Mexico City. They cannot compete in other, in other areas. Well, these kind of things can function. But this is an exception. This is not the rule. The, the, the people cannot organize all the time things this way. And the, the worst point is, the, the, the question is that, uh, that there is a kind of alliance between the corporations and the scientists and the middle classes and the media. And, and, and this, this whole system creates a kind of, of uh, knowledge imperialism, uh, programming the minds of the people. Then they have not enough protection about all this. I wanted to f follow up this question of the fourth M, which became an N, yes, the NGOs. And the, the, you talked about people developing yeah. the soul of the people. Yeah. Developing the soul, it's, it's a meaning uh, changing our basic values, our basic attitudes, uh, our um, basic moral imperatives, and uh, our practical uh, attitudes, our ways of, of being, our uh, very basic notion of what a good life is. What um, the NGOs does better than the media, and better than the government, and better than the transnational corporations, it's going uh, deeper and deeper uh, to deeper layers of our souls, of our being, to teach us, to educate us in another attitude. What would be an example? Let me start with an example of um, political example, uh, democracy. In every village, in every uh, barrio, we have a system for decision. This is our traditional system for an important decision. It is not really the tradition for 500 years ago or the pre-Hispanic tradition. It's, it's, a, it's a tradition enriched in time with uh, the revolution and with the influence of many different trends. It's a regenerated experience. When we have an important decision, the people start talking about this decision. And then everyone has an opinion. The, the people that are very shy, that don't dare to speak in assemblies, can speak with, with his friend in, in the bar and, and can speak uh, everywhere. And, and the old people and the young people and the women and everyone is talking about that decision. And then the, the decision uh, circulates in the, in the village or in the barrio. It's a kind of, of roaming <laughs> thing that going around. And in time, it, it starts to take shape as, as a kind of, of decision in front of the predicament. And then it is polished by the people with full participation of the, of the people. And then after some time, you have the meeting, the assembly, the, the reunion, to take the decision. But the decision, in fact, is already taken. The, the assembly is just a ritual. It is just to formalize the decision. You have something like a vote, and, and, and you vote for the decision that you have already taken. This is for us self-governance, and this is self-governance that really includes the real participation of everyone, the, the weak and the strong, and uh, every, every person in the community is involved in the process of decision. 
we, we like this form of government. But we are now educated to something that is called a democracy. If we ask to the political parties now coming to our places for educating us, they are teaching us that we need to, to must be affiliated to this or that party, and then we ask, uh, what is your proposal? And it's very difficult for them to, to present to us an ideological proposal and, and, and a kind of... They start with phrases that say nothing to us. But that is democracy. That is, that, is, that is apparently good for us. After some time, we have a division in the community. There are some people affiliated with one party, one, some people affiliated with the other. We can talk about uh, something like helping the informers through the NGOs by the creation of micro-enterprises and they are teaching us good management and how instead of our informal administration of our uh, workshops and how we can have uh, our nephew working with us in the, to teach the, him how to, to make shoes, uh, how we must have a contract and we have, we have a, a system, a management system and, and, and we must have how to organize properly uh, the thing and transform that small workshop in a micro business, imposing on us different values. This includes many, many practical things. They are trying to teach us how to eat and, and uh, how we need to, to have a checkup periodically, how they start giving us that checkup. The doctor come and, and the doctors, uh, of course, they always discover something in you, even if you are f you you were feeling very well. But then they discover that you have any kind of things, and then they start giving to you the the, the, the pills, the treatment, whatever. And then they go, and then but you are already have the dependency and and the, the image that you cannot anymore trust your own body or trust your family or trust your community. But you need to trust a hospital that is not there, a doctor that is not there. And then, and then you really are losing your, your soul. A process of consensus formation without democracy it could also result in sometimes in very rough justice, no? I don't know how rough is the justice. We want the rights of the communities, the right for every community to be governed by themselves, following their own definition of what is a good life, following their own rules, their own system, uh, following their traditions, but with a kind of limitation to the communal power. Let me say that we immediately tell ourselves that perhaps this is another case in which we want to have the cake and eat it, <laughs> to have both things. But really, we want both things. We, we want a kind of protection for the person and a kind of protection for the community. We want justice to be applied to real human beings, to real men and women, not to abstract homogeneous atoms. I think that the standard law, the human rights law, the, the law of a nation, is always a nation in abstract terms that instead of producing justice, produce basically injustice. That the judge if he is a good judge, must not take in consideration the personal aspect of the thing, but the homogeneous aspect of the thing. He must not make he or she must not make an exception because of the person. We want a justice that take into in consideration the exception, the, the the condition of this person doing this or that thing, and that may accept the regeneration of the criminal of the, the, the delinquent in the hands of the community that may accept the process, the living process of 
every one of us is, uh, has imperfections, every one of us commits mistakes, but the community in personal terms may correct us. But at the same time, because we also know about all the abuses that can be committed in, inside a community, the abuses provoked by irritation, tensions, emotional uh, decisions of, of excited crowd, we think that we also need protections to, to put a limit to the communal power. Uh, to, to say in a caricature, we cannot accept that the communal power may have the right for a homicide, saying uh, we can accept that a community decides to kill this man because he did this or that. We, we don't want that possibility. Uh, we need to limit the communal power and the abstract power. Okay, so you're seeking a, a new balance between state and community. Yeah. What is concretely happening in that regard? Are you making some progress with that? Yeah. I think, of course, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, we may suffer very easy the syndrome of, uh, of the Chanticleer's cock. It was uh, attributing to itself the sunrise. Yeah. Well, uh, because what is happening is corresponds to our hopes. It's not because our structure produced such results. I think there is a combination of events. Uh, what is called uh, neoliberal thinking and uh, the neoliberal orientation of the government and their commitments with the uh, privatization of many things in, in Mexico coincides with many aspects of our reality, our hopes and our struggles. Then there is the combination of objective and subjective factors of what the government uh, is doing, what we are, are, are doing, how the government is reacting to our claims, how international pressures force the government to do some things. It's the whole collection of factors in which, because of the, that collection of factors, I can see a very interesting advance in that direction. First of all, the Mexican state, to be clear, the Mexican bureaucracy is really being dismantled. That's good news, by any means. In some cases, that uh, bureaucracy now has been sold to a private company that in some cases will be worse than the bureaucrats. But I think that uh, both the state and the market and the people will have the means to correct these things in the companies. In many other cases, the bureaucratic apparatuses are simply disappearing. And finally, in some other cases, they are now in the hands of the people. Instead of bureaucratic apparatus, now the people are handling the operations. That is really good, good news. We have now more spaces to do many, many things. Not enough, not, not at the rhythm we, we want. But we have changes in that direction. So the Salinas government then is showing you two faces. There's the free trade proposals on the one hand, opening Mexico more to penetration by transnational companies. And on the other hand, there's the liberal ideology which opens space for you. Mm. Yes, but uh, I, I must say also that uh, I think that in, in, in the name of neoliberalism, many stupid things have, have been done. But I cannot defend protectionism of, of Mexico because they were protecting not the people, but local inefficient and corrupt capital. <laughs> It was not a good form to prevent international capital from coming to Mexico. It was just complicated the situation, but it was not a good protection for Mexicans and for the people. 
then to open the frontier is not th that terrible danger. The bureaucratic barrier was the problem. I, 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 am, I am not defending free trade in the abstract, but in the very concrete terms in which we were, we were living. The second uh, aspect of the thing is that what I think we are looking for in Mexico is something that is being looked for in many parts of the world. It's a combination of autonomy and a kind of correction of the injustice of the market and of, of injustice of all the, the economic society. The question of the proper relationship between state and society can be constructed in many ways. It's the question which, in effect, found sociology. The German sociologist Tunis contrasted Gemeinschaft, immemorial and unselfconscious community, with Gesellschaft, formal economic society. Durkheim opposed mechanical and organic forms of solidarity. Similar linked pairs have run through the history of 20th century sociology. Today, with communism over in the West and the welfare state in prolonged physical and moral crisis, the question is once again radically open. Esteva puts it in terms of what he calls Shanin's dilemma after his friend and colleague, rural sociologist Theodore Shanin. Shanin has posted the, the problem in these terms. If the people can express themselves democratically, they tend to vote for things that a good socialist uh, may call petit bourgeois preferences. That is, some pornography, some sports, more TV than reading, whatever you can find in a popular newspaper. The solution for the European socialists some time ago was very simple. In simple things that requires a decision once and, and, and for all, uh, an elite must conduct the people for uh, their proper understanding of the problem. And this was uh, an appropriate solution and satisfactory for many things that require that kind of solutions. But for all the remaining things, the problem is that the elite, the elite is corrupt themselves. And the only way to control the elites, to control corruption of the elites, is to open the governance of the society to the people. But we are then back to square one, because if, the pe if you open, really, you dissolve the leads and you bring the people to decisions, then the people uh, may uh, bring to the society decisions that are ethically, aesthetically and philosophically unacceptable. Then how to, to escape from this cycle? How we can really uh, escape from the corruption of the, of the elites and the decisions of the masses, the power to the masses? Populism has also failed. Then what to do? This is a dilemma. And this is not our dilemma. This is a, a dilemma ev everywhere. And, and then I think that we are exploring now in Mexico. And I, I'm, uh, I have the feeling that it is both the government and the people are exploring forms from escaping to this, to this dilemma. And, uh, and this dilemma perhaps may be solved if we renounce to have all the governments in the top and to try to govern the nation-state, and to govern everything in the nation-state. Perhaps the, the question, what, what really affected the democratic ideal, was the idea of governing democratically big societies, mass societies. That is more or less impossible, and we know that. But instead of discussing what to do in such cases, what to do if, if you cannot govern democratically such societies, we stop thinking. 
because we had the confrontation between socialism and capitalism. We have the confrontation of a kind of state socialism and the kind of liberalism that we have had in, in, in the West. And we stopped thinking, really. We, we, we really paralyzed our minds, uh, trapped in those, in those paradigms. But the world is falling apart, and perhaps it's good time to come with new ideas. And I think that, that we are trying to, to test some of these ideas in, in, in Mexico. Uh, I think that uh, the um, Mexican government is stronger than ever now, being after dismantling more of their bureaucratic apparatuses. And it is not because they have more military <laughs> tanks or because they are uh, being stronger in their control of a very barrio or a very village. It is precisely because of the opposite, because of, uh, they are not doing that, that they are stronger. That they perhaps may renounce to govern every aspect of our society. And we are fighting, we are struggling in that direction. They are still in control of so many things that we want for the people. Mm -hmm. We don't want for them or for private capital. I, uh, we are convinced that we, <laughs> quote-unquote, uh, I am not speaking <laughs> the name of anyone, that the people must have in their hands the, their own government, their own spaces, their own way of things. And there are just a few things that must be in the hands of the, of the government or of capital. Now, we talked a few years ago about the kind of requirements of the state that at least partially self-governing communities would have. For example, in Mexico City, one primary one would be control of traffic. Mm -hmm. are, are those kind of things being entertained by your government now? We, we have a very intense discussion now. Perhaps it has been uh, with a lot of, of confusion because of the opposition parts that are, I think, uh, I, this, uh, that's my feeling, that they, they are perverting the discussion. The government in Mexico City is explicitly saying that they want political reform of Mexico City. And they have explicitly accepted changes that represent autonomy, self-governance for the different barriers, for the different sections of the city. They have first accepted an assembly of uh, representatives that start with, with a, it, it's a kind of parliament in Mexico City, with good representation of the different parties and the different barrios, the different trends, political trends. And they are ready, I am convinced, to accept uh, a lot of decentralization that the people in the barrios may, the, the, the structures of government uh, may, may be constructed around the barrios and not centralize it. The very basic point is how to get at autonomy, what kind of autonomy. And I think that, that the people have many ideas and that we can come through uh, with these ideas in, in the next months uh, or, or the next two years, that some uh, very basic decisions will be taken and will be enacted in the, next, in the next year that will include more autonomy for the people in the barrios, for the uh, kind of self-government. Perhaps we will include even things like the questions of the police. I, I think that something that is highly irregular in Mexico City, that there are areas of the city in which the police cannot enter or need the permission of the, of the local mafia <laughs> to go to that place, that may be corrected in a kind of compromise, in, in, in a kind of compromise in which the people will take care of themselves. And, and, and the, 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 this is arrangement, a legal arrangement, a decent arrangement, uh, including self-restrictions in the side of the police, and self-restriction in the side of the of the barrio. 
And, and this will be perhaps an effective uh, measure against the gangs uh, of every kind that now are abundant in Mexico City. Well, this is a tremendous opportunity. I am absolutely convinced. I know very well that we have a lot of dangers in front of us, that uh, that we are in a very risky situation, that we can have a kind of nightmare and an and apocalyptic situation at any moment. But I am convinced. I, I, I must say that it is not out of optimism. Uh, I am trying to be uh, absolutely realist, uh, realistic in my appreciation of what I am seeing. What I am smelling, it's an opportunity, a real opportunity for radical changes uh, in which I think the most important obstacle that I, I see in front of me is in our minds, not in our reality. Gustavo, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you very much. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to an interview with Gustavo Esteva. He lives in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico and describes himself as a deprofessionalized intellectual and nomadic storyteller. The program was part three of our series, The Earth is Not an Ecosystem. It continues tomorrow night with an interview with Smito Kotari of Lokayan. Lokayan means literally dialogue of the people and is a center for grassroots organizations in India. Tonight's program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical production by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. We would like to thank Kalpana Das and her colleagues at Interculture for making these programs possible. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $5 or $20 for the entire six-part series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Ecosystem, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. A collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is available in book form from James Lorimer and Company. The book is called The Age of Ecology, and it's in bookstores across Canada. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.